Good morning. It's June 1st. It's going to be a hot one in New York City today. And this is your Indignity Morning Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Skoka, taking a look at the day and the news. 165 Democrats and 149 Republicans came together in the House of Representatives last night to pass an agreement to deal with the debt limit. More Democrats than Republicans, that is, voted for the package of cuts that Republicans extorted from the Democrats under threat of the debt ceiling. The Times describes this as a blow to Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, whose hard-fought victory on the measure was dampened by the fact that more Democrats ultimately voted for the bill than members of his own party. Seems like if McCarthy got some cuts and didn't bring down the entire global economy and didn't get deposed from his job, he did just fine. Maybe he feels dampened. Who can say? The important thing is that despite all the critics and the naysayers, our legislature demonstrated that it can pull together and accomplish something on a bipartisan basis, as long as that something is a completely artificial task created by the recklessness and fecklessness of the two major parties and necessitating weeks and weeks of high-stakes negotiation just to prevent a self-imposed disaster. If you're not subscribing to Hamilton Nolan's excellent newsletter, How Things Work, the New York Times has you covered with a front-page story today that's the same story Hamilton had two days ago, describing how the insurance industry is in retreat from the ever-growing costs of disasters brought on by global warming. Most recently, last week, State Farm stopped selling homeowners insurance in California, giving up in the face of ever-expanding wildfires and other climate-driven catastrophes. Hamilton writes that Florida property insurance rates are rising 40% in a single year. In Louisiana, it was even worse. The state insurance of last resort bumped its rates 63% this year. The Times adds the fact that in parts of eastern Kentucky, ravaged by storms last summer, the price of flood insurance is set to quadruple. A nice shorthand way of describing what the insurance companies have concluded is that these places are being made uninhabitable. None of which stopped Joe Manchin from getting his gas pipeline deal in that budget ceiling agreement. On page A19 of the Times, above the jump on the climate disaster story from the front page, is Trump on tape talking of secret document he had after leaving office. This broke late yesterday, and I'm sure it was difficult to get it into the paper, but it still sits in a pretty awkward contrast with the page one article, DeSantis takes pokes at Trump, but cautiously. Dateline Pella, Iowa, as Ron DeSantis is on the campaign trail. None of the pokes that Ron DeSantis takes at Donald Trump on the stump are going to make any difference in who gets nominated for president in 2024. None of Ron DeSantis's calculations about how hard to poke at Trump without alienating the Republican base are particularly interesting either right now, because as we've discussed elsewhere, stuff is happening and Donald Trump is going to be in a different position a year from now than he is today. And that will put everyone else in a different position. And no one knows quite what that will be. This new story about the tape recording is by far the juiciest leak to have come out around the special counsel investigation. CNN, which broke the story, has the more interesting account than the Times does. Just the lead of the story is nice and clean and hilarious. CNN writes, federal prosecutors have obtained an audio recording of a summer 2021 meeting in which former President Donald Trump acknowledges he held on to a classified Pentagon document about a potential attack on Iran, multiple sources told CNN, undercutting his argument that he declassified everything. The recording indicates Trump understood he retained classified material after leaving the White House. 
according to multiple sources familiar with the investigation. On the recording, Trump's comments suggest he would like to share the information, but he's aware of limitations on his ability post-presidency to declassify records, two of the sources said. Why would Donald Trump go on a recording talking about illegally possessing classified documents? Well, it was reportedly a meeting at his New Jersey golf club with people who were working on the autobiography of his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, CNN writes. Mark Meadows was not at the meeting about the work on his own autobiography. But by CNN's account, in the meeting, Trump was upset about a New Yorker story in which General Mark Milley, his former head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had taken credit for pushing back against Trump's desire to start war with Iran. The document, according to Trump, showed Milley's own desire to attack Iran. CNN writes, Trump told those in the room that if he could show it to people, it would undermine what Milley was saying. One source says Trump refers to the document as if it is in front of him. Several sources say the recording captures the sound of paper rustling, as if Trump was waving the document around, though it is not clear if it was the actual Iran document. Of course, anyone who remembers the folders full of blank paper that Trump stacked up as evidence of his plan to turn his business operations over to his children while president knows that just because Donald Trump is waving around a piece of paper, that doesn't mean that the piece of paper is what he says it is. Nevertheless, by this account, the man is on tape going down a checklist of all the components of the crime of mishandling classified information. The dumbest and most persistent defense of Donald Trump has always been that he doesn't really understand what he's doing. So if he spelled out that he was in possession of a classified document that he knew he couldn't share, and that he had no personal power to declassify anymore, that does seem to give prosecutors something to work with, if they're inclined to work with it. And the city reports that, in response to ongoing scrutiny of conditions in the city's jails, the City Department of Corrections has stopped telling the public when somebody dies in its facilities. The Department of Correction had been releasing that information, and now it won't. The spokesperson told the city that was a practice, not a policy. Over the past two weeks, the city writes, the DOC has failed to notify the public about at least two deaths, including that of Rubu Zhao, 52, who died after he allegedly jumped from an upper tier of a specialized unit on Rikers for people with mental illness on May 14th, and of Joshua Vallis, 31, who died on Saturday, suffering from a fractured skull that officials first internally labeled as a heart attack. Certainly neither of those sound like anything that the public might want to be notified about or to exercise any oversight on. And so our law and order mayor is going to spare everyone the trouble of knowing stuff like that. That's the news. We will talk again tomorrow. Please subscribe to Indignity to keep us going. Thank you for listening and stay in the shade.